Hope y'all are doing well. We are in the book of Luke, so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 16. Um, if you don't have one, just look underneath you. There's these blue and white Bibles. Take that one and keep it. It's our gift to you. You can have it forever. You can give it to your friend, whatever you want to do. Um, we have been reading through the Bible together for the entire year. We're in a study called The Journey. Uh, and each month as we're doing this, we pick a book of the Bible and we preach through that book. So as you're reading through this, and you're going to be reading four different books of the Bible, we pick one of those and we, we, read, we preach on that one book. So this month we're looking at Luke, uh, kind of the, the tail end of Luke. <clears throat> and so if you have one of these, you can go ahead and open up to the sermon notes section. Every six pages there's a place to write sermon notes. Um, if you've been reading along in the journey, and I tell you I'm in Luke 16, you're thinking, wait, that's not right. You're supposed to be a few chapters later, and you're supposed to pick a section from there, and you're right. Um, but uh, I thought it would be interesting. Jack was here last week um, because we finally uh, finally had a baby, and um, <laughs> took forever. She was like two weeks late, but we finally had our baby. And so Jack preached for me last week, and when he preached, he preached Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 13, the parable of the dishonest manager. And so um, as I was looking at the text, a couple reasons led me to go to Luke chapter 16, uh, 19 through 31, and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The first reason is all of 16, chapter 16, is kind of one big story, and so Jack preached kind of part one, and I get to come in and kind of preach part two. The other thing is I've had some conversations here recently about this particular uh, parable, and I was drawn to it anyway from the conversations because I had already been kind of reading and studying it, and so I, I thought, well, perfect, so I'm going to preach it anyway. So um, that's what we're doing today is looking at Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And as I said, it's really a continuation of last week. So if you were here last week, you're, you'll be following along. If not, I'll briefly uh, bring us up to date. So let me pray and then we'll jump in. Well, let, let me say this first. Um, one of my seminary professors, he wrote this, and I thought this was really good. For us all, as we're going in to pray, for us all to be thinking about. Um, if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a while, you go to church likely every Sunday, every other Sunday, whatever fits in your schedule. Hopefully it's every Sunday. Um, but my, his point is this. Um, as we go in and out to church every week, it's easy to find ourselves in a routine. And it's sometimes, maybe accidentally, easy to find yourself not expecting. Not expecting. I'm not, I'm not coming expecting. I kind of have the expectation. I know what's going to happen. And he wrote, if God unexpectedly moves in my life this morning in a powerful way, am I ready to say, not my will, but yours be done? So it's easy, I know, to get into a routine. And so as we go into prayer, um, just pray that. Pray, God, I go to church a lot. I go to church every Sunday, perhaps. I'm used to going. And sometimes it's easy as I'm doing that to just know I'm going to hear some preaching and singing and see my friends and then go out to lunch. And sometimes I, don't, I forget to come expecting to hear from you. So as we go into prayer, ask the Lord, God, I want, I want to expect to hear from you. I mean, we're looking at his words. So uh, pray that the Lord would do something new in your, in your heart this morning. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is amazingly powerful. As we'll see even in this text, at the very end of the text, uh, your word is stunningly powerful stunningly powerful. And so, uh, as it would be in this text, that powerful 2,000 years ago is just as powerful for us today. We're not reading a cookbook. We're reading the Word. We're reading 
God's word and it has amazing power for us. And so God, I pray that as we look at it this morning, your Holy Spirit would come and just amaze us with who Christ is, what he's done. And for those that know Christ this morning, that they would have um, a deep love for Christ born within them that causes them to go out and live lives of worship. And for those here that might not know Jesus, God, that you would regenerate their hearts this morning. That the preaching of the word, because your word is so powerful, not me, your word would cause them to want to say yes to Jesus. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, save them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, wanna, I want y'all to stand, and we're going to read this text, and then uh, we, will, we will go dive in. But let's all stand and, and read this text together, just in honor of the word. This is a, a, a parable. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Um, as you can see in verse 14, the Pharisees were lovers of money. The whole chapter is about money. And so the whole two parables themselves are kind of in their face. Uh, starting at verse 19, Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, or hell, um, in the trans- other translations. Being in torment, this, man, this rich man, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm which has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to here. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, that's Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Preaching God's word is an awesome privilege, but also a terrifying responsibility. It's an awesome privilege because God chooses in his infinite grace to use weak feeble men to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. And so it is an awesome privilege to be able to do it. But conversely, or in in the same mindset, it's also terrifyingly, um, carries with it a great responsibility because there will be weeks as you preach where you come across just difficult subjects that have to be taught as you're going through Scripture. And because they're so true and they can cut so deep and they can evoke in all of us, in me and in you, such um, great emotions in the listener, sometimes maybe even contempt. It's a terrifying responsibility to preach things like this particular text. Today, um, and, and all sermons should be carried with it a sense of, 
of sober-mindedness. Today is particularly heavy and weighty. Um, as we're looking at the greater content text of Luke 16, is, is about money and what it, how it affects us in our eternality. Not just in our contemporary lives, but how money and the love of money affects us in our eternality. But this particular text in, in particular, it's so weighty because we're looking at the doctrine of heaven and hell in a lot of ways. And that's, I think, um, an awesome responsibility to preach on it. Now, the name of this series is called The Place of the Skull because, as Jack mentioned, and if you know anything about the book of Luke, uh, Luke, as he's writing, at, as he gets to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, as he's talking about Jesus, there's this, there's this turn, uh, as he's been ministering, there's this turn in 951 of Jesus um, to go straight to Jerusalem. It says in Luke 9.51 that Jesus, literally in the Greek, it's a Greek uh, Hebrew idiom, he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. Meaning as he looked towards Jerusalem, he is absolutely determined now, no matter what was happened, there's nothing's going to change. I'm going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem for Jesus means death. Jerusalem means I'm going to Golgotha. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. So 951 in, in Luke is the turning point where everything, although it's always serious, has this serious movement towards Jerusalem. And so this is the walk towards Golgotha as we're looking at it. And so we're looking at different things on that particular walk. Um, so last week, Jack was looking at chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. And in the end, you can see kind of the, the point. Uh, parables always find their, their point at the very end, well, always, usually. And you can see the point of the last week's parable in 13. No servant can serve two masters, so either hate one and love the other. You cannot be devoted to one and you can't despise the other. You cannot serve with God and money. Now, Jesus in the larger context is talking to Pharisees. And Luke's quick to point out to us, the Pharisees... Um, who knew the scriptures, they knew the scriptures, were lovers of money. And so Jesus knows exactly why he's telling these two parables. And they heard these things and they ridiculed him because they didn't think that um, the way they used their money and their lives affected their eternality. And Jesus is saying, yes, it does. Now, let's all say, we're evangelicals, okay? So we do believe that the way to spend eternity in heaven is to put your faith in Jesus Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And by faith, you are saved. Yes, we believe that. However, we don't need to just skirt these verses that say, that's true. However, the way that we use our money in this particular life certainly bears some kind of effect on the, whether we're going to spend eternity with heaven. In other words, if we are truly Christians following Christ, then our hearts would be changed and the way that we use our resources would be different. And if they're not any different than the world, then that heart change has not happened. Therefore, we're not believers. So you can see here the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things that money, you can't serve both God and money. And it says in 15, they began to justify themselves before men, but God knows their hearts. So the way that we choose to use our resources, and we're going to talk about this today, um, certainly gives evidence to what our eternality will be. It shows whether we truly love God or not. So here, Jesus wants to launch into another parable just to continually remind them in verse 19. I don't know why, and I, I think it's interesting about the divorce and remarriage right there in there. We'll figure that out another day. <laughs> Why 17 and 18 are stuck in there. 16, 17, and 18. It's definitely an interesting place to put. Um, I know that there's a reason. 
Um, I don't know right now. Verse 19, then there was a rich man. So Jesus is going to go very intentionally, following up the previous story, into this particular story. Um, There was a rich man, and he's going to talk about heaven and hell, and um, what are the things you need to know in regard to money. Uh, And when we think about heaven and hell, we're going to talk about what it looks like to understand the doctrine of heaven and hell in light of the fact that money reveals whether we're truly following Christ. Um, It's important to, I think, talk about subjects like this because everyone will die. We do our best, especially in the Western world, to insulate ourselves from death. Um, We keep ourselves away from it as much as we can. One pastor says, our world doesn't know what to do with death. When people begin to die, we put them in retirement homes and care centers and hospitals. We tuck them away out of sight, we fill them with medications, and we try to make death seem not so deadly. When someone dies, we put them in a box so that we don't have to stare at death in the face. And if the box is open, we see the deceased with makeup and nice clothes on so they appear not dead. And in our Western world, this is, this is vastly different. If you think about the last 2,000 years, death was all around them. When people died, it was always even in front of the children. People the children were exposed to death continually, but not in this Western world. We, we hide it, we dress it up, we don't like to talk about it, and those that are getting close, we put them over, away from, our, we don't like, from ourselves, we don't like to watch it. And so death is, is always before us, but especially in our world, we don't like to think about it. Now, here we're going to be talking about heaven and hell and the great chasm and where people go whenever they die. Um, before we go into that, I think it'd be helpful to understand kind of the big, huge, roughly six belief systems of the world. This is almost everybody in the world is covered in these six belief systems of where people go when they die. This is from a, a pastor. He says there's kind of six ideas. There's the naturalist, which is kind of the, uh, the, atheist, the atheist. Everything is just of this world. When, you, when you're born, you live, and when you die, everyone ceases to exist. There's nothing. No one goes to heaven because there is no heaven. No one goes to hell because there is no hell. It's just this is the naturalist view. We're all just humans. We live, we die, that's it. That's one view. Um, there's another view, which is universalism. So uh, it's kind of the opposite. It's everyone goes to heaven. Everyone goes to hell. Um, with a couple exceptions, they'll probably throw Osama bin Laden and Hitler in there and the really, 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 really bad people. But everybody else pretty much will go to, to heaven. Uh, that's the universalist. Uh, the next is the reincarnationist view, which is everyone just keeps coming back to earth. Uh, after they die, they just keep, whether they're a cow or a lizard or a monkey or another human or whatever, they just keep coming back until they kind of pay off their karmic debt, and then they'll eventually go to some kind of, some kind of heaven. Um, then those are, those are really not the evangelical views. These next kind of three aren't necessarily all evangelical, but le- these next three at least fall under kind of the categories of Christianity. The next one's called the annihilationist, which is that some go to heaven, those are the Christians, and then some who won't go to heaven, who've never put their faith in Jesus, they go to hell, but it's not eternal. They, they go and pay their debt of uh, being punished by God for never choosing Christ in their sin, but they're eventually annihilated. They don't actually pay it forever. It's not eternal conscious torment. There's just some level of payment, and then it's over. They cease to exist, and those who are Christians will go to heaven. There's the next view, which is more of a Catholic view. This is purgatory, where those who die go to hell. There is no annihilationism. They go there forever. But those who who are Christians go into a mid-range kind of place. Unless you're just awesome, you go straight to heaven like if you're the Pope. But otherwise, you go to purgatory. And until the people on earth say enough prayers or pay enough money, um, this is at least the middle-age view, um, then they can finally kind of boost you out of there to the next thing. Um, That's what Martin Luther wrote the whole 95 Theses for. Um, you can't, believe, you, can't believe, you can't be taking money from people for priests saying, hey, I can 
get your people out of purgatory, you know, slip me a 20. Um, it's not, that's, that, that was the reason why he got so upset. Um, by the way, purgatory, find, that was in the 1500s. Purgatory finds its roots from like the year 300. Augustine, just not from the Bible. There's not one verse in the Bible. Augustine's just kind of speculating in one of his random writings about this kind of mid-place between earth and heaven, and then a whole doctrine, because Augustine's kind of the, the founder of Catholicism, the whole doctrine finds its you know, roots in Augustine, and all the theologians that followed him just took that idea, and said, that must be right, and then here we have purgatory. Um, and then there's the Bible, <laughs> the sixth view. There's the Bible, which is Christians go to heaven forever, non-Christians go to hell forever. This is what the Bible, any other view other than this is not true. It's not true. This is the true view because, as I said, these are God's words. And so here we're being told what it's, um, what it's like for people in some senses. Now, this is a parable, so this is an exactly accurate. Uh, there is no, like in the story you saw the rich man who's looking up into heaven and he sees them. He's like, give me some water. There is no, there is no time ever where anybody in hell can see up into heaven. They're completely separated. So it is, there is a parable, but as we're talking about heaven and hell, let me give you a little bit of um, understanding of what they're like. Grudem says that, he's a systematic theologian, says heaven is the place where God is most, most fully makes known his presence to us to bless us. Heaven is a place. It's not a state of mind. John 14 says there, I go to prepare a place for you. Heaven is where Jesus is, and it will be forever. There will one day be a new heaven. And the greatest thing about heaven that's where Jesus is. That's where we will be with him. And some, some secondary awesome things about heaven is that there's no sin, there's no tears, there's no sickness, there's no fears, there's no more uh, pain. Uh, so the greatest thing about heaven is that we get to be with him and all of the ramifications of the fall are gone. This is the greatest thing about heaven. Um, some more things about heaven. There will be eventually a new earth that will be, that will be created uh, the creation itself, as it says in Romans eight twenty one, is uh, longing to be freed from its bondage of decay. And then one day um, we will all obtain this glory just like earth will be uh, made new. All of us who are Christians will be made new as well. Um, another one is that we'll have our bodies back. Whenever the second coming happens, uh, right now we're made of two things, soul um, and, and body. They'll be put back together in that new earth. And we'll have, we won't be floating little ghosts around, but we'll have our bodies, we'll eat, we'll drink, we'll be merry, we'll be with people we know, we'll walk, we'll work. Um, it'll be amazing. It, I have, that's, we can say things about it, but we can't say things exactly because <laughs> none of us have ever been there because it hasn't even started yet. So, but we can say some things. There will be a city, um, and there will be with Jesus in that city. There, I think, will be music and art. Um, and we'll see the full excellencies of all those things in creation. It, I mean, it's just amazing, right? We, we can speculate and try to talk about it, but we can't fully understand it. It's just going to be vastly, incomprehensibly better than this. Incomprehensibly better. And there will be, in some manner, time. <laughs> How, I don't know. But there will be, in some manner, time. Uh, because it does say in Revelation that we have no need for the sun because Jesus will be our light. And so we measure our time by the sun anyway, which is a 24-hour day. So maybe there's not 24-hour days. I don't know. In some, de- in some sense, because we're finite creatures, we'll always be in some kind of finite part of creation. So there maybe there'll be some kind of time. I don't know. 
Uh, but w- the one thing is that we'll be there with Jesus forever. As the old hymn says, we've been there 10,000 years, if they measure years that way. Um, bright shining as the sun. There'll be no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It'll be awesome. It's just going to be amazing. This is the picture of heaven. Um, we have these great promises. Conversely, and absolutely as great as you can think heaven would be, as polar opposite as you can get is hell. It is the absolute worst place ever. There is nothing at all great about it. The Bible, um, Grudem says, hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Spurgeon says, if there were no hell, the simple loss of heaven would be hell. So, I mean, hell is just awful. The Bible speaks of hell in this way. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, just a torturous place. It's darkness. It's eternal punishment. It's an unquenchable fire. This term of unquenchable fire, they, they use the term in the, in the New Testament, Gehenna. In the New Testament times, there were wicked pagans that lived outside of the city of Jerusalem where idolatry and heinous, disgusting sin was practiced. Things like infanticide, where they would take babies out and just kill them um, and sacrifice them out on the ground. And the, the people of Israel hated this place. They hated the outside of the city place where idolatry and wickedness was practiced. They would take all the, all the bodies out there and they would burn them. And it just became the trash dump because it was such a terrible place. They'd take trash out there. They'd take bodies out there. It stunk. It was rank. And it was always an eternal fire burning. And so Jesus, as, as he's coming along, they had this place called Gehenna where wickedness happened and it was hot and it was terrible. And there was always an unquenchable fire. And they said, Gehenna, that's what hell's like. It's like Gehenna. It's an unquenchable fire. Matthew says it's an eternal fire. There's anguish. This particular place we're even looking at calls it a place of torment, of anguish. Um, It's an exclusion of God's presence. And we know that this, even in Revelation, it talks about the great wine press of the wrath of God. So it's, it's the place where the wrath of God, you can say to yourself, oh, there's heaven and hell. God reigns in heaven and, and Satan reigns in hell. He runs, he calls the shots there. Satan does not call the shots in hell. Who reigns in hell? Well, it's not Satan. The old saying from uh, Paradise Lost by Milton says, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. This is not true at all. No one reigns in hell besides the, the presence of God's wrath. That's who reigns in hell. God's wrath reigns in hell. Satan doesn't reign in hell. No one calls the shots besides the wrath of God. It's a place where rebellious sinners go. It's been prepared for Satan and his angels, it says that in Matthew. Um, we'll come back to that. And it's where all who have, for their entire life, never put their faith in Christ and have continuously rebelled and chosen sin, they taste in this place the full fury of the wrath of God forever and eventually will be cast into the lake of fire and will be there forever tormented. This is awful. I mean, it is an awful, awful place. Why are you saying all this before we go in? Because I want us, as we go into this story, to feel the full, heavy weight of what we're talking about when we see the story. How does a sinner go to hell? This is how close they are. Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. There's nothing between you and hell except the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. You probably are not aware of this, for although you find your you're kept out of hell, 
you do not see the hand of God in it. Instead, you attribute your current state to other things, such as the health of your body or the care of your life and the means by which you, of your own preservation. But indeed, these things are nothing. If God should withdraw his hand, you would avail to no more. Your health would be nothing. Your care of your life would be nothing. Your own perseverance would be nothing. If God were to withdraw his hand, they will avail you no more to keep you from falling um, than that air can hold up a person who is suspended. Your wickedness is makes you as heavy as lead. Your righteousness has no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web has to stop a falling rock. So what keeps us from this place? Only the sheer mercy of God. Every one of us, don't miss this, willingly choose that place over Jesus, which is insanity. It's insanity that we would do that. But because of the fall, we have been so corrupted that we, our minds are so not in love with Christ but ourselves in sin, we choose that instead of him. And therefore, what we choose is hell forever. But there's this awesome message called the gospel which says you don't have to receive that. Let's look at the characters. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Remember, he's talking about rich man to say that the way we spend our money here speaks to our eventual eternality. So the financial status is brought up on purpose that this man's rich and poor. Um, you can see that this man's rich in verse 20. The guy, Lazarus, is poor. The rich man who is clothed in purple and fine linen. You're like, purple? I don't even like purple. Well, back then, uh, to wear something purple, it, it was very expensive. They had to kill a bunch of snails and pour it all into a bucket, and eventually they could get enough. You had to collect them, collect them, collect them, collect them. So if anybody had enough money to buy that, to get purple clothes... They were rich. So you can see this man's so rich, he can afford to get purple clothes because they've killed enough snails. And he also had fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. Now, this is a parable, but Jesus is trying to point out that this man is wealthy beyond measure. And at the same time, at this rich man's gate every day was a poor man named Lazarus. Now, if you read a lot of parables, you'll notice Jesus never names people. But in this particular parable, he names people. He names this man Lazarus. Calvin seems to think that this is actually a real story and a real man. Um, because Jesus names him. Calvin says, eh, it's no matter, maybe I'm wrong. But I really think this, actual, this story is actually real. So you have Lazarus. Calvin thinks is a real man. Covered with sores. Everyone, because he's poor and because he's covered with sores. And that particular day, if you were poor and like Job covered with sores, everybody thought, well, you must be doing something wrong. You're under God's punishment. So you have rich man who thinks, God must love you. You've got poor man. God must hate you uh, because those things wouldn't be happening to you. And here we're trying to, Luke is showing us, Jesus is showing us, it's the opposite. Just because you're poor, just because you, your life isn't going well, doesn't mean God doesn't like you. It could be the exact opposite. Just because you're rich and you sumptuously eat every day doesn't mean that God's absolutely head over heels with the way you're living your life either. It could be the exact opposite. And it says, um, who co- he was covered with the swords and he desired just to be fed with whatever fell from the rich man's table. In other words, you could just brush off the crumbs of your table to this man and he would be absolutely fine with that. Moreover, listen to this, even the dogs, this is so gross, Dogs, in the, I know you, dog's best friend, you love him. He sleeps in your bed and you think that's awesome. Dogs were filthy animals back then. I think they're filthy animals now, but that's just my opinion. Dogs were filthy animals back then. It wasn't like, this isn't like, hey, you got the dogs licking your sores. This is like, 
the nasty beast of the, of, that runs around the earth, the lowest of the low are the ones who takes care of this man. So the dogs came, and this is nasty, and licked his sores. Calvin says, it's the hardened cruelty of this rich man which is shown in the sight of his wretchedness that didn't even move him to compassion to help Lazarus, but instead left it to the dogs to heal this man's wounds. You have dogs bringing comfort to the lowest in society. Calvin says, had there been a drop of humanity in this man, he ought to at least order supply from his kitchen to feed this man. This is what I think we need to think about. When we see a dog licking this man's wound, God help us, church, if strangers or animals perform for us the office of the mission of God to go and do ministries of mercy. If animals are carrying out the ministries of mercy, bringing comfort to the, to the sick and poor instead of us. This is, this is exactly what's going on here. He's performing, if you will, some, some kind of ministry. So God help us if anybody takes the job of the church to go do both word and deed, proclaim the gospel and deed here, which is happening, ministries of mercy. And then we have, and at his gate was laid a poor man. He, the poor man died, verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. This is a term of the Old Testament. This is where those who are Christians would go. They would go to Abraham's bosom. Those who followed after God would go there. And those who, who didn't would go to Hades. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So there's some notes I want you to see about the great chasm here as we're looking. The first one, as we saw in 22 and 23, and even in verse 25, hell is not an unjust punishment from God. Hell is not an unjust punishment from God. Um, Instead, it is earned and deserved. Uh, How do you earn hell? By what I've already said. By not choosing to put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, all of us willingly choose hell. And those who put their, all of humanity chooses that. And those who put their faith in Christ and confess and repent their sins, then they receive heaven. But all of humanity has this bent towards it. As it says in verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember in your lifetime, you received good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. So, in a lot of ways, the way that the Lord has blessed us financially, if we pack all of those things on, in on ourselves and comfort ourselves, being rich or trying to stay rich isn't what determines heaven or hell. But if you are, and just to give you a hint here, you are. <laughs> Everyone here is in the top 1% of the world in wealth. Even if you're eating ramen noodles as a college student every day, right? You are in the top 1% of wealth in the world. And because of that, the way that we choose to use our wealth to those who are the least of us demonstrates whether real heart changes happen. And so hell is not an unjust punishment. They are in Hades. Um, C.S. Lewis, as he's talking about being in heaven or hell and being on earth, he says, for unbelievers, earth is the closest they will ever come to heaven. For those that never, ever trust in Jesus, when they're on earth, it's the closest they'll ever get to heaven because they're getting to experience things that are from the hand of God. But for those that are believers, earth is the closest that any of us will ever get to hell. Pretty amazing quote. So the rich man here, um, he chose this. Day by day, he would walk by. It says that the, the poor man lay at his gate. 
day by day, the rich man would walk by this man and do nothing. He might brush the crumbs off his table to this guy, but nothing more. He did, he did nothing to help this guy, and thereby, because of this, in the parable, he has earned for himself eternal punishment because of his sin. Piper says, if we use our money to fatten our cushions instead of seeking every way possible to invest of the hope of others, then we will go to the place of torment. Jesus points out, Calvin says, what condition awaits those that neglect the care of the poor and indulge in all manner of gluttony, who give themselves to drunkenness and other pleasures and allow their neighbors to pine with hunger, nay, instead of just allow, who cruelly kill with famine those around them they ought to have relieved when the means of doing so were in their power. So true ministries of mercy for Christians True ministries of mercy have Christians that are willing, don't miss this, because we think that we would never live this way as Christians, and this is, I think, true. It's not that we cruise along and we stay at a good condition and then we help others. True ministries of mercy, I read this in Center Church by Tim Keller, and I think it's good. It's by Bruce Waltke. He says, Christians are willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the poor in the community. Man, that's just the opposite way I think. I think, take care of myself completely, get all my things I need. If there's any extra spillover, then I'll take that and help out people. But he says, Christians that are true ministry, doing true ministries of mercy, we're willing to disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage the poor in the community. But false ministers, false Christians are willing to disadvantage the poor in the community in order to advantage themselves. This is exactly what the rich man did. And because of that, he receives eternal conscious torment or punishment forever. Something that he has deserved. You may say to yourself, why eternal? That doesn't seem just that it would be forever. Jonathan Edwards and, um, I forget the name of the book, justification of the condemned or something like that. Um, I read it this week, but I forgot the title. It says, um, a deserved punishment and a just punishment are the same thing. To say that one deserves such a punishment and yet to say that it is, he does not justly deserve it is a contradiction. And if he justly deserves it, then it must be justly inflicted. So if someone has earned hell, then it must, it's always just for the Lord to give it. C.S. Lewis, in the same kind of way, says it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those who say to God, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. So, the length is not unjust. Sending someone to hell, we, we would say, yeah, people that aren't Christians, that makes sense if they willingly rebel forever against God, but what if it's the idea for it being forever, that seems unjust. So, there are even Christians that, that like the view of annihilationism. I think it should end. And the basic idea, well, let me read two texts and then we'll explain why. Daniel 12, 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame of everlasting contempt. So the Bible teaches it's everlasting. Matthew 24, 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So it's, it's biblical that it lasts forever, but why? Because any offense, if I, if I sin against you, you are finite, I'm finite, the punishment that I deserve 
from that should not last forever. Because you're not, if I do something wrong to you, because you're not infinite, the punishment I should get should not be very long. But when we willingly choose to sin against an infinite being, thereby the punishment that's given to us should match that. And so the punishment we receive should also be as long as the one that's been offended. That's why it's forever. Because I think this helps us see, maybe it lifts for us all, the absolute seriousness of sin before God. Like it's a big deal. It's not some small thing because he's forever. Verse 24. This is where it gets really interesting in the parable. Um, You have this man calling out, he's in hell. And yet he still says, Father Abraham. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. So he's Jewish. He's talking to Pharisees, so likely he's Jewish. And he's thinking, because I'm Jewish, you're my father. I'm an Israelite. Shouldn't my religion and the fact that I'm part of this religion save me? Father Abraham, have mercy on me. The second note I want you to get is this. Being... For, for, the, for that day, it was being Jewish doesn't save. Instead, following Jesus is saved. It just kind of expanded out to the year 2015 for us. Being in a religious family does not save anyone. Just because you grew up in a religious Christian family, that doesn't save you. Faith in Jesus, evidenced by fruit, saves. Just because we're in a family. This is, John the Baptist looked at these particular Pharisees and said... And Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. When we repent and trust Christ, then what should follow is fruit. Real simple. No fruit, no heaven. No fruit, no heaven. And in this particular context of Luke 16, the fruit is money, but we could go everywhere. Calvin says, when the rich man says, Father Abraham, this is expressing an additional torment that he perceives that it's too late and he's now cut off from being a part of the children of Abraham. A modern day example of this would be, I'm a child, if someone says, I'm a child of God, I believe in God, don't tell me that the way I use my money should jeopardize my eternal destiny. (laughs) The Bible says it does. Yes, you're a child of God, you put your faith in God, you believe in God, you put your faith in Christ, we should maybe probably be more specific, and it should affect the way you live. Now this is a parable, verse 24, you have this man in hell talking up to Abraham, that will never happen. Um, And this is where it gets crazy interesting. I know it's a parable, right? But Jesus says the heart of this man is, is displayed. What would he want? If, 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 if I were in hell, just the worst way to start a sentence. If I were in hell and I was looking up, and this is possible, and I'm in torment and anguish, as it says, and I can see, I'm pretty sure I would say, can I leave here? I want out. I want to come there. Give me another shot. What does he want? Doesn't want a taste of heaven. He wants another taste of earth. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. Just want another taste of earth. Just just showing his heart here. He's never ever a lover of Jesus. Never ever a lover of God. Always a lover of pleasure. For I'm in anguish in this flame. I'm in anguish in this flame as we read but Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. Lazarus and like men received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. And then you have this amazing text, verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you 
is a great chasm, a, a vast, vast expanse that has been fixed. No one crosses post-mortem, after death, this great chasm. No one. It's impossible. Once you're dead, it's over. So the third note I want you to realize is this. Is this. Death is utterly final. It's utterly final. There is no being reconciled to Christ after we've died. Which means today is the day of salvation. Today. Death is utterly final. The great chasm is in full effect after we die. Calvin says, we're reminded to return early to the path while there is still time, lest we rush headlong into that great abyss from which it is impossible to rise. Hebrews 9, 27 is appointed for man once to die, and then after that comes the judgment, and the great chasm is there. There's no mulligans, there's no redos, there's no repeats, there's no, let's, let me have another shot. It's when you de- die, that's, you get one life, it's over. C.T. Studd's poem, um, one life to li- only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We have one life. And the bed that we make as we live is the one that we sleep in forever. So death is utterly final. There's a great chasm. Again, I'm saying this because if you're a believer, this should destroy you for those that don't know Christ. There's no shot afterwards. We've already kind of, as much as we can, contrasted the greatness of the eternality for those that are Christians and those that aren't. And this great chasm is greater than we could imagine. And the greater and greater expands, the greater and greater of degree of joy is awaiting and torment is awaiting. And it should destroy us to know that there are people going there. Which we'll see here. This, we're going to see that exact point here in verses 27 and 28. There's a great chasm that's been fixed in order those who would pass through you would not be able. None may cross. In verse 27, he goes, okay, I can't have water. This is what I need then. Then I beg you. Notice these words that he's using. I beg you. And in verse 28, warn them. So even in hell, this rich man realizes that there's an urgency that must take place then for those that are still on earth. It's too late. But it's highlighting for us the urgency. Then he said, I beg you, Father Abraham, to send Lazarus to my father's house. And these next five words, I think, they should burn in your head. These next five words, I think, can serve for us as the impetus or the catalyst to send us out every day to do the work of Christ. For I have five brothers. Now you can change that to fit your context. For I have four sisters, for I have six roommates, for I have six people in my family, for I have four neighbors, for whatever you, fit it to fit your context of the unbelievers around you. But for him, for I have five brothers. For Jesus, John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So Jesus says it. I have other sheep that aren't in the fold yet, and they need to be told so they can be a part of this fold. For I have five brothers. What is that sentence for you? For the rich man is five unbelieving brothers. He, he does not want to spend an eternity forever with him in hell. 
how would you say that sentence? For I have what? Write it down. For I have this. Our hearts should be moved with absolute deep sorrow when we think of this doctrine. We are deficient spiritually and emotionally if we're not moved by the lostness and the future that awaits them. Ezekiel 33.11, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, nor should we. Nor should we. We should be devastated that there are people around us. Number four, fourth point I want you to know is this. That means this. Evangelism, just a big word that means tell people about Jesus and how to be saved, is absolutely crucial in this life. As the man used urgent words like beg you, warn them, those words should move us. It's crucial. It's absolutely crucial. And this is difficult because we deeply love those that are close to us and we long that they would be alive one day in heaven, but we need to have an urgency that they can hear the gospel. Now here, this last section is quite interesting. This text, Jesus is going to say, um, if, if somebody, somebody says, if I could just see it, that's what I need. I need the proof. If I could just see it, then I'd believe. Jesus, okay, this isn't random Joe Schmo making a point. God himself is going to say, that does not even convince people. But there is one thing that does convince people that's more powerful than them dying and coming back or someone who is actually resurrected, and he's talking about himself coming back and telling them. He even says that if someone should rise from the dead, at the very end of verse 31, and he's talking about himself, which is striking because he hasn't even died yet. So he's, this is all messianic words about what he's going to do. He's going to say, even if someone were to come back from the dead and say, hey, I've been there. You know, like the little boy who recanted and said he, he went to heaven and didn't or whatever it was. Like, that, does, that shouldn't convince us. I forget the story. But you know what I'm talking about. I saw the movie. Good movie. But not real. But my point is this. Jesus is going to say, instead of someone even coming back from the dead telling you, I saw the light in the tunnel and here's how it went, there's something even greater. And that thing that's greater is the actual Bible. Jesus says, if you want someone to believe, the strongest thing, the most powerful thing that can actually get them to believe or be converted is the Bible. And he calls it Moses and the prophets because that's how they referred to the Bible at the time. They called it Graphe, Scripture, Moses and the prophets, the law. But he says, I want to warn him, verse 29, but Abraham says, I don't need to send Lazarus to warn him because they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets had been dead for a while, by the way, so we're not talking about the literal Moses and prophets. We're talking about the writings of Moses and the prophets, the Pentateuch and the 12, the 12 prophets. And he's saying, um, I don't need to send Lazarus. The Bible's over there. They got the Bible. And he says, and he says, let them hear them. Your five brothers, if they hear the word, can be saved. And then the rich man says, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. Postmortem, he even sees the necessity of repentance as, as a means to conversion. And then he says, he said to them, 
if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. <clears throat> Jesus. If Jesus himself rose from the dead and came back over to the five brothers and say, hey, I died for your sins, you should believe in me, that isn't as powerful as the word. That, that's what Jesus is saying. Think about the power of the word right now. I mean, that's astounding power. That's why I said in the beginning, this, if this says something to you today that causes you to say, okay, all bets are off, I'm doing that forever, then would you submit to it? So the fifth thing, full submission to the gospel word from scripture is necessary for true repentance and salvation. Now, I've underlined full submission because I don't mean hearing a story and doing whatever you want. I'm saying, okay, I hear that. Now I'm going to fully submit my life to it. Moses and the prophets represent scripture, which contain the full gospel word. He wants a sort of proof. And Jesus says in John chapter 20, verse 29 to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You don't need to see me to believe. You have the word. Jesus places a very high value on scripture and full submission to this word will demonstrate or give true repentance and salvation. But what is he trying to teach us here? He's teaching us that they need to submit to the word. So the application for us is this. We need to fully submit to the word in ourselves and do what it tells us. But for those that don't know Christ, the word is the key. The gospel word that we tell you, that you hear me say about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ comes from here. It's not me making up a story. It's from here. And as I tell it to you, the Holy Spirit takes his word and pushes that down deep into your heart and belief is born. Regeneration, being born again, happens. And then you are saved. And then from that, you live a life evidencing that you've been saved. It's stunning that Jesus says in verse 31, if someone should rise from the dead, because he's talking about himself. And if a person here that's, in this particular text, as we're following up from chapter 16, the first half, if a person is so in love with money that he's absolutely deaf to the commands and warnings and promises of the Bible, then even a resurrection from the dead, namely from Jesus himself, won't convince him. So submit your hearts to Christ and his word. We've seen five things here on this great chasm. Hell is a deserved punishment. Just because you come from a religious family, that doesn't save. Personal faith in Christ is what saves that this is the one shot that all of us get and this is the one shot that your five brothers or whatever you filled in that sentence get. It's utterly final. Not just for you, but for all of the people that you know that don't know Christ. Therefore, we have to be absolutely vigilant when it comes to evangelism. I don't think, and I, I am guilty of this, so I am saying to myself, stop being this way. I don't think that I can be laissez-faire about telling people about Jesus and just think that if I do it once a month, I'm fine. If I I try to remember once a month to tell somebody, I just don't think that's sufficient. I don't think that means I'm not a Christian. I just don't think that's sufficient. If this is true, if, if the Bible talks about hell this way, I need to be far more involved 
in day-to-day evangelism. Perhaps you feel that too. And the last thing is this. In your day-to-day evangelism, do not ever discount the power of the word. The word is what saves through, through Christ. I mean, he uses his word to save. Don't ever discount the power of knowing the word and showing the word to people. Bring your Bible. I mean, that's what it literally means. Bring your Bible when it's time to talk about Jesus with people. And as they read, I, I hold it out in front of, I don't try to quote it because I'll misquote it anyway. I have to end up giving the FUD standard version. Like I hold it out and I say, read this with me. Because like, I believe as you read this, the Holy Spirit comes and it just does crazy things. Like it amazing. He uses his word to, to save. So perhaps as we go into this time of reflection, these are maybe some, some things that you can think about. Perhaps um, as we're launching into this fall, kind of a brand new beginning for us all, uh, a, a renewed passion for those that don't know Christ, a renewed understanding of heaven and hell for those that are believers, a renewed thankfulness that God would save us and bring us forever to be with him in this unbelievably described place of heaven and for those that are our five brothers or however it is you wrote it down a renewed beginning again of seeking them as much as you can letting the reality of what will happen if they don't know Christ sink into your heart and devastate you I think that drives us trust the word We're going to go to a time of repentance and and confession and worship and prayer. And however the Holy Spirit's leading here, be be obedient. You've got time here. God spoke, so let's take the time to think and pray and respond. Maybe you just need to sit and pray for a second. Maybe you just need to stand and worship. If you want to talk to me, I'll be back here in the back. I'd love to have a conversation. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this time where we can hear your word reflect on your words, sing out praises to you. I pray for us all now as we maybe confess, repent. Maybe we write down a list of our five brothers, sisters, neighbors, roommates that need to hear you and we pray for them right now by name. Maybe we just thank you again for the power of the word. I don't know, Lord, but I pray that you would move in this time as we reflect and give you glory. Praise in Jesus' name.